I mean, the idea when Bitcoin first came along was that you were taking the power away from the governments and the banks. Where there were internal conflicts in those countries uh, and the international community decided to help. And I can remember them coming back very thin and yellow and very weary of fighting. Welcome to episode 7 of series 2 of the Dyson House podcast from the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I'm your host, Cameron Christie. This week, I'm joined by Rowan Callick. Rowan was the China correspondent and then Asia-Pacific editor at the Australian Financial Review and The Australian. He's a fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs and a Walkley Award winner. This week, we discuss his experiences and the rise of China. Rowan Kellett, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Very happy to be here. Thanks, Cameron. Um, Perhaps to start, if if you could maybe tell us a bit about yourself and your work. Yes, I worked as a daily newspaper journalist for most of 40-something years um, in Britain where I grew up, in Papua New Guinea for 11 years, then I migrated to Australia, worked for 20 years for the Financial Review, and uh, about 12 years for the Australian. And uh, now I'm an industry fellow for Griffith University's Asia Institute. I'm doing quite a lot of public speaking. I'm writing a couple of books and uh, keeping myself busy. And how did you how did you decide that you wanted to become an international reporter? And, and also, what was involved uh, in achieving that goal? Uh, yes, when I grew up, I grew up. My parents ran a newspaper shop, and um, I grew up reading newspapers and magazines. And at a young age, I wrote to embassies. In London, I grew up in Essex, east of London. I wrote letters to the embassies asking them to send back magazines and whatever about their countries. I was very excited every time the post came and I had a brochure about Bulgaria or Brazil or wherever. And I developed an interest in journalism at the same time. So combining the two, my kind of dream was to be a foreign correspondent. This uh, is a a rare opportunity Um, in Australia. I haven't counted it, counted the numbers up. I could have done done so before this chat, but (laughs) I would roughly guess when you take the ABC out of the equation, who now employ the lion's share, we're talking about no more than... uh, 15 or 16 people in the whole world for all media. So this is really uh, quite a rare opportunity. And uh, because I had that time working in Papua New Guinea, I was running a locally owned publishing house. We were launching newspapers and magazines for the then young country of Papua New Guinea. To make ends meet, I was writing for Australian newspapers, particularly the Financial Review, and uh, to earn a bit of money. And kind of worked out that was work of a foreign correspondent. And then um, the opportunity emerged to go to Hong Kong during the handover, 96 to 2000, to be the China correspondent. And then later, uh, the Australian wanted me to be their China correspondent, so I spent two spells of two or three years each in Beijing, only recently returning from from China. 
and uh, I still keep pinching myself about my good fortune <laughs> in managing to have the kind of career that um, most excited me and I'm still traveling in and out of um, the region. I've just come back from a week in Taiwan and I'm heading off to Chengdu and Hong Kong uh, in a couple of weeks' time. You mentioned just a moment ago the um, the, the handover um, in Hong Kong in, I believe that was 97? Yes, Correct? June the 30th. Okay. Was Pouring it... with rain. <laughs> was it was it that in particular that, that drew you to Asia, or was there something else that, that really made Asia stand out to you? In no. I, well, there are two. I'm, uh, because of my time there, I particularly loved Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinean people, and so I ha I'm very much drawn to PNG, uh, but there's only one foreign correspondent there, correspondent there working for the ABC, actually. Um, the rest have all been cut. Um, I, I do have a big place in my heart for PNG, for the Pacific. I travel a lot. I travel to every Pacific uh, island country, and so I really have a lot of time for that region. But when I was working in Mosby, I had annual leave back in Britain, where I came from before I became an Australian citizen. And uh, I'd go through Hong Kong. We had a Hong Kong colour printer, and I used to write for the Far Eastern Economic Review, marvellous magazine, now no longer in existence, which is based in Hong Kong. So when I used to go through Hong Kong, I used to stay with friends there and see printers, see the people at the magazine. I fell in love with Hong Kong, uh, with Chinese culture, Chinese people. And uh, so when the opportunity occurred for me to be in Hong Kong for the handover, I grabbed it with both hands and um, my interest in China has grown exponentially since then. It must be quite challenging cultivating the relationships needed to obtain the information that's required when you're reporting overseas, particularly given that there are so few foreign correspondents out there. So I wonder, how do you go about making a name for yourself? And, and was this perhaps the greatest challenge that you faced in this role, or was there maybe something else that comes to mind? Australia doesn't automatically open the doors that um, being, say, um, a correspondent for the New York Times or for Financial Times of London or one of the great newspapers of Japan might do. So you're right. Saying that I'm from the Australian Financial Review or the Australian doesn't necessarily open doors, so have to get to know people and building contacts is part of the journalistic game. So the game involves background information, getting to know the people about whom you're writing, getting to understand the context, and being able to speak to individuals who have currency, who, whose voices will help explain to the readers, the audience back home, uh, what's happening in that place because you're in the middle, you're the, you're the conduit trying to explain what's happening um, 
and sometimes there's uh, so that's building up those contacts. I I agree is is uh, is something that means you have to spend all your time really focusing. So you build contacts socially who are of use for work and some people you meet for work, it's good to meet socially and so on. So you, um, uh, you do that and uh, then you come to a, a certain group of people you might come back to f over um, trade issue or, or political issue or cultural issue. They, they'll be different people, but um, you certainly need to have that... Um, that group within your acquaintance. So when you contact them, uh, they'll receive your call, or they'll be happy for you to go and go and meet them. And um, I've, I suppose, developed such an appetite and such an interest that I hope people enjoy talking to me because uh, of my avid interest in what work they're doing or what they're thinking about or what actions they're taking. So if I'm interested in them, that means that they're more um, available to talk to me and um, I've built up a group of people. In People's Republic of China, this is difficult, uh, particularly today because uh, uh, constraints are considerable powers of surveillance and control have never been higher. And so that's a factor you have to take into account that uh, you may contact people uh, who um, are happy to talk to you off the record, but sometimes not even talk off the record on the phone. They would prefer to meet you in a tea house, a coffee shop or somewhere else where they feel more secure and you can see that the number of uh, people who are being quoted from within China about important events there uh, is getting the pool of people willing to be named is getting fewer and fewer. Would it be fair to say then that it's actually becoming increasingly difficult to, to report in places like, like China as time goes on? Oh yes, of course. Quite hard. So, for example, China. No courts to which the public or media are admitted for the most case, particularly any controversial case. For example, the Crown Casino arrests of a couple of years ago. No access. Uh, so no courts, no parliament, uh, except for the annual session of the National People's Congress. People are allowed into opening and closing ceremonies to one or two special events inside briefings, but uh, there's, there's no easy access as in Australia. Comparatively few press conferences, people in high office in China, Never, I think I can say never speak on the telephone. So even senior people at state-owned enterprises who are also government officials um, will never speak on the phone. So um, gaining access to uh, that type of material is tough. It's tougher for bit 
for um, television journalists than for people who work in print who uh, may be able to get round that in other ways. It's, it's quite tough for TV. So you end up sometimes presuming out of your knowledge of people, your background conversations and so on, things that uh, in other countries are more clearly articulated, announced in uh, press releases and so on. We have to read, you have to read Roman Rabal, the um, People's Daily, um, which is quite often an authoritative voice from the leadership to get a, a clue. Um, and in China it's become more difficult. So many countries since the uh, internet have opened up more. You can find out more in China. It's the opposite. Actually, things have become more constrained, I, I would say. But uh, people still manage bravely to post things which are then quickly closed down. But if you have friends who download rapidly, rapidly download stuff which can be of interest, which shows uh, a range of views, uh, you can get access to sometimes to to that range you can talk to people in the street if you know and so on and chinese people are highly individualistic along with americans i think the most individualistic people in the world so they all they, many of them have views strong ones but um the constraints are also considerable so moving on now to i suppose the, the chinese economy you began in asia in 96 um, with the Australian Financial Review. Um, and I'm wondering, how has China's interaction with the world economy evolved since you first began reporting there? So we're now 40 years on pretty well since uh, under Deng Xiaoping's pushing, China launched its reform and opening period. So I got into this... Um, some way into the picture, but things really started accelerating during that period when I was there. So the world, people had already, particularly from Hong Kong, Taiwan, been investing to uh, uh, build this uh, uh, low-wage, high-growth economy uh, with a strong focus on exports, and this was taking off and living in Hong Kong was quite patent because I was in and, in and out of southern China often. I spent a week of most months in Beijing as well. Um, you could particularly see in Guangdong, the, the province next to Hong Kong, how uh, everything was moving at a very fast, fast rate then. So... Uh, Foreigners were trying to work out how to get money into China in a way that would give them faster, bigger, faster return than in uh, the slower, mature economies of Western countries. And uh, so this was big story. It was an exciting story of, of, of the time, that uh, mid to late 1990s. What are the, what were some of the primary factors behind this opening up 
to the world? Is it were these primarily economic factors, or is there a social or political aspect to this? Under under Mao Zedong, uh, China had really been bypassed by its neighbours. So already earlier, China, uh, Japan had uh, seized the nettle of change, moved into becoming a constitutional monarchy and uh, had uh, become um, a, a hub of industrial growth. And then Second World War happened, then afterwards Japan picked up again um, and accelerated, shot ahead. South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia. So these other countries in the region um, using somewhat similar model of development were really going places. And China uh, was suffering after the Great Leap Forward, probably the world's greatest human-made catastrophe, and then the Cultural Revolution, not too long afterwards. Um, Deng Xiaoping, great servant of the party, feared for the future of the Communist Party. It looked like the party's whole uh, future was in doubt. This is an existential time. He decided that uh, uh, the way to rebuild party legitimacy was after Mao had died, um, was to uh, rebuild it on the basis of the party being the vehicle to prosperity. So this is what happened. So the, uh, the party encouraged foreign investment in manufacturing, particularly, as I say, encouraged people to move from rural to urban areas to uh, work in these new factories, often foreign-owned, foreign-invested. And um, uh, at that stage, people weren't really thinking so much of China as a market. They were thinking of it as a, as a place from which to uh, manufacture and to export. So things, and it succeeded. Deng Xiaoping spent a lot of time with uh, foreign uh, tycoons, particularly from Hong Kong, I would say, Li Kaxing and others he knew, and um, he persuaded them to invest. Um, there, there were, wasn't without problems, but uh, they managed to get money out, they put more money in, or they reinvested, and uh, things really took off, and China started to become the factory of the world, as we know, and uh, the point of assembly from which, um, to which parts in other parts of Asia came, were assembled in China, and then exported. So the great Asian value chain started. I wonder, obviously, a, a, an important topic today, um, or at least a topic of interest, is the rise of China and its, its role in the sort of global economic order. Um, and I wonder to what extent you think that China's prominence has the ability to shape that order and what impact that might have. 
this is what's happening right now is uh, Xi Jinping um, has inaugurated um, in his uh, towards the end of his five years in power now six years actually but towards the end of the fifth year um, his thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era has uh, been uh, placed in the national constitution and in the party constitution the stress is on a new this new era so it's not the Deng Xiaoping era of reform and opening this is the new era of, of, of Xi Jinping and one of the key parts of the new era is China is going to go into the world and uh, is going to recreate global institutions uh, in a way that uh, better, as it sees it, reflect its own achievements and capabilities. And uh, it intends to... Um, uh, uh, it intends to 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 build to build that new world and to uh, change the way that uh, the world operates. Um, this is a quite substantial change in thinking. Uh, Deng Xiaoping talked about you know hide your light and bide your time, uh, just focus on prosperity uh, on each family getting you know focusing on uh, educating the kids getting um, uh, building itself up saving money uh, becoming more qualified and so on and this reflected internationally but she wants to weaponize the economic interdependence interdependence that China has with so many other countries in the world, including Australia. And uh, in order to achieve those global goals, which are readily audited by uh, the scores of millions, maybe I should say hundreds of millions of Chinese who are traveling internationally, studying internationally, investing internationally. So how how does the rise of a competing economy such as China's influence the foreign policy of okay. somewhere like the United States, for example. Okay, so it's not uh, it's not so much the rise of the economy; it's the rise of the polity that counts. This in, this is the challenge. So, without the economic success, China wouldn't be able to start to put its polity in play. But it's the polity that counts. Xi Jinping, uh, his, at core, believes China is the greatest civilization in the world. The Communist Party encapsulates everything that is good about China, past, present, and future, and that he personally embodies the party in its best form. So huge changes under him in this new era. 
And this purposeful China through uh, external um, stratagems like Belt and Road and so on, um, and through um, domestic economic stratagems like Made in China 2025, are, um, through those stratagems, he's planning to realize this new era at home and abroad. And he sees this as a time of great weakness in the West and is taking uh, the opportunity to uh, push forward the party's interests. Uh, and we're seeing some push back against that at the moment. We're seeing that in Asia. There are signs that, uh, you know, I would say, around the edges that uh, other countries in the neighbourhood are becoming a little nervous about the, the pace and the purposefulness with which China is pushing ahead. It, the arrival of Trump throws a strange, uh, you know, unknown into this whole game. Whether that will be to Xi's benefit or not is very hard to say at this stage. At first it seemed, yes, to his benefit because he was seen as the globalizer in contrast with Trump, the, the, the nationalist, the narrow, with his more, apparently more narrow focus. But... The trade war with America is op opening up all sorts of concerns on a wider front. Um, so I wonder how you suppose Australia should consider positioning itself between a state that it obviously has very close ties within the, in the United States and a nation that it relies on so heavily for trade in China as these tensions um, escalate. Yes. So there's a, um, I believe, it, a false dichotomy is drawn by various people for various reasons um, between America and China. So that oh, Australia can only be friends with one country at a time. Oh, if you're friends with America, you can't be friends with China or vice versa. This is not really, um, this is not true. Uh, we can have good relations with both and we're not going to become a military ally of China. I think that's um, quite unlikely at this stage. Um, but we have a, a free trade agreement with China. We have a free trade agreement with America. Um, we have very close relationships with um, other countries in the region. And... Um, the idea that we should carefully assess uh, uh, economic, trade, strategic policies to see which side we should fall on is really uh, demeaning. You know, Australia is a place on its own. Um, sometimes we disagree with America. We disagree intensely over the American withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example. Disagree very much with Donald Trump over his uh, 
mercantilist approach to trade. Um, we disagree with China over the way um, it um, operates to an extent inside the room it gives uh, certain people certain groups of people in its own country um, we don't necessarily speak out publicly um, uh, in criticism of either China or America there's not so much point in doing so in my view um, uh, unless we feel it's going to have some useful effect but we can have those views that we we, uh, um, we are a country that uh, in which the rule of law is important we have separation of powers uh, in China this China doesn't have rule of law, doesn't have separation of powers. It's a different type of animal. Um, it's just necessary to understand that and to understand the uh, uh, ubiquitous uh, and immensely capable uh, role being played, ambitious role being played by the party in everything that China does. Um, but it doesn't mean we don't deal with it. It's the same well, many people find Donald Trump um, disagreeable in all sorts of ways, but that doesn't mean that we don't deal with um, uh, the American government. Uh, we've had a, a long history of dealing with um, uh, Indonesia in, in uh, a mostly positive way, uh, even though we don't agree with everything that uh, happens internally, internally there and so on. So I think that uh, Australia is uh, you know, 12th or 13th biggest economy in the world. Um, uh, it's only very slightly smaller than Russia. And yet people talk about uh, Putin and Russia as being immensely powerful uh, capable of making decisions in its own right, who it allies with, how it r behaves internationally, but then treats Australia as if we are kind of some, um, such a, a supplicant small power that we, uh, we just have to be blown around. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think um, China likes many things that it sees in us in Australia and uh, uh, sees change of prime ministers apart a fairly stable place um, and uh, America has seen Australia as a country that's mostly a dependable ally and so on and uh, this is going to continue uh, but the um, the ways in which uh, she and Trump are uh, running and running hard, hard and fast at the moment do create a, a, uh, uh, a lot of pressures that uh, people need to calm down and uh, 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 be prepared to look at our own strengths in, in all our relationships.
Excellent. Ron, I wonder if you have any final observations or anything that you uh, feel we you may have missed or anything that you think we should know about uh, perhaps about your experiences in China. Yeah, I th- well, uh, one thing, uh, there are two things I would say. One is um, that uh, China is much more than the Communist Party. Uh, China's history, China's people, uh, China's culture, these are enduring, enduring and hugely attractive um, parts of global civilization and will remain so. I'm not predicting the downfall of the party any time soon. I've written a book about the party. I wanted to have new editions, so I don't think so. But I, I, um, I think it's very important um, to for people to realise that one can criticise and uh, analyse what the party does without being anti-China or anti-Chinese, just as one can be critical of uh, Scott Morrison, critical of the Liberal Party, without being anti-Australian. I think many people in Australia would say criticising the Prime Minister and uh, party in power is actually being more Australian than not. <laughs> and so I think that that's something I'd really like to stress and uh, that um, we are enjoying large number of Chinese migrants coming here, large number of students and large number of tourists and uh, they're fitting in well. They're enjoying their stay here. Uh, investors too are coming in large numbers. They should be welcomed. Why not? The other thing I want to say is that we really need to know more about our region and we are quite inadequate uh, in terms of appointing people to uh, decision-making positions who have experience of living and working in Asia or the Pacific. So in our corporations, in our universities, in our media, in politics, in public service, very, very few people in Australia have had experience of uh, working and living in Asia or are people who have, of Asian ethnic background. Uh, the, either of those possibilities. But uh, this tends not to happen, and uh, people with that experience often tend to go stay overseas, working for, uh, in a distinguished way, hundreds of thousands of Australians, uh, dis- working in a distinguished way for international companies or whatever. Um, but they don't get the chance back here, where those sorts of people are seen as fixers who are outside the room where decisions are made. We need people as chief executives, on boards, chairs of companies, uh, heads of government departments, vice-chancellors who've got that knowledge and experience. Um, I think that's very important. 
I'd, I should add a, I should add one third thing, which is Pacific Islands is being seen by too many people as a kind of strategic playground. It's a mistake to think that Australia can um, uh, regain its rightful role as a sort of prime external manager of the region without actually committing itself in many more ways than through defence alliances or setting up bases and so on. I think we need to really rediscover the importance of our own island neighbourhood and uh, uh, recommit to people-to-people -people links on a much more intense scale with people from Papua New Guinea across to um, Polynesia. Um, we should get to know them. We should uh, be friends with them. We should have more people here. We should travel more there. And uh, um, it's a great shame that we've kind of become lost in our own region. Even though those people know us very well, we don't know them well. Warren Kalik, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Cameron. Enjoyed it, of course. Thank you for listening to episode seven of the Dyson House podcast. Join us next week for episode eight, in which we'll turn our attention towards North Korea. And as always, don't forget to subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud so that you never miss an episode.